Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So when I was a prosecutor, I'd go around with these guys. We raided crack houses and bust up gangs. This apartment complex over here, it was bad. Uh, sorry, my internet was on. <laughs> Turn that down. Oh, my God, Richard Irvin. I think he's going to win, D. I really do. I believe he's going to win the uh, Republican nomination. Okay. I mean, money talk. 50 mil, baby, 50 mil. Yeah, without a doubt. He's winning that Republican nomination. He's a Republican. Like, yeah, you know, I like the uh, fascism stuff, but uh, I think I'll go with the rich guy. That is correct. Oh, Darren Bailey, don't agree with that. You're running. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, here comes the COVID. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Uh, brother. Hey, everybody, your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, June 1st is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union and Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V is in victory. S K Y. It is Wednesday, June first. Ben, happy June. Yeah, happy June. Is it June first? Yeah. Oh my God! Happy June, D. And this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. your host still has covid and apparently he doesn't know what day it is <laughs> we're in trouble gang <laughs> chicago oh, reader Lord. columnist ben jarofsky <laughs> don't make me laugh we're calling this don't make me laugh wednesday and here's why because every time i laugh i start gagging and gasping covid's no joke ladies and gentlemen and yet i plow on and yet one show after another in pain okay hey i'm like michael jeffrey jordan in the flu game game five correct D? Yes, you're similar to an athlete playing basketball. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, by the way, people are going, it's uh, Monday, where's Monroe? I mean, it's Wednesday, where's Monroe? It used to be Monday with Monroe. Uh, Monroe has to go to the dentist, ladies and gentlemen. Something about a root canal. Those are no fun. Those are never fun. Yeah, you know, poor guy. Just go. Okay, just go. Uh, So uh, Lee Allen Jones will be here and Keena Collins will be here as well. We've already sent the... uh, uh, the message out to Keena Collins. Looking forward to talking to her. Actually, uh, I'm going to mention this when uh, this is an opportunity to mention this about twice. But Keena Collins, Latisa Wallace, and I will be doing a indivisible show. We love doing these indivisible shows uh, that the impresario uh, Lenny Mana Hoppenworth has set up. I call her the impresario because she's like behind the scenes making things happen. Uh, and uh, so uh, Latisa Wallace, everybody knows, good friend of the show, uh, was state rep from Rockford, ran with Danny Biss as his vice, uh, excuse me, his vice uh, president, his lieutenant governor. And I voted for that ticket. Dennis makes fun of me all the time uh, for uh, for having voted for Danny Biss. More Dan <laughs> Biss than, you know. <laughs> I know, because you love Latisa as well as I Yeah, do. she's awesome. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, so anyway, uh, she's now running for Congress. 
uh, and Keena Collins is running for con- uh, Congress as well in the uh, 7th Congressional. So we're really looking forward to that show tonight, an indivisible show, and Keena Collins has joined us. Now we're going to talk a little bit about it. But let me just get this uh, out of the way, Keena, before I bring you on. And uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, my beloved Dems. been a Democrat my entire life. Keenan Collins has heard me in this story, tell this story many times. I've been a uh, Democrat my entire life. There was never a time in my life when I wasn't a Democrat. And I'm one of those Democrats that goes, well, you know, I'm kind of an independent, <laughs> you know, like, I, like I can't remember the last quote unquote independent I voted for. I really got to think about that. Oh, uh, Governor uh, Rich Whitney, uh, the Green Party candidate uh, in 2000 uh, in a six gubernatorial. Uh, but I'm a Democrat. I look to the Democratic Party. For, uh, that's the party that I expect and anticipate to deliver on the New Deal promises of FDR. That's kind of what I'm, that's the standard. And I just watched over my entire adult lifetime as my Democratic Party, my beloved Democratic Party, has allowed itself to be bullied into moving uh, right. And then they actually believe the worst things that the Republicans say about them. And more to the point, they think there's a distinction between themselves, corporates, neoliberals, whatever you want to call them, the Bill Clintons of the world, the Rahm Emanuels of the world. Uh, they think there's a distinction between themselves uh, and what? The real Democratic voters, you know, they like think they're better than the real Democratic voters. And this is, of course, a never ending uh, sense of frustration for me. So it's always encouraging for me uh when there's progressives lefties whatever they want to call themselves who are running uh in uh, just without apology uh for that uh sector of the voting population and i appreciate them tremendously and i'll be talking to two of them tonight uh latisa wallace uh and uh, Keena collins and um we'll be dropping uh that as a uh, podcast up uh, sometime next week so uh, without further ado Keena collins welcome back to the show <laughs> Jamie J, great to be back. Hey, Dennis, great to see you. Um, whenever Ben Jaroski calls, I, I answer. And I'm so happy you're going to be on the Indivisible call tonight moderating. It's going to be a good time. It's it's going to be a good time, Lynn. Uh, I don't know how well you know Latisa Wallace, but uh, she's got a lot to say. Uh, she was on the front lines in Latisa Springfield in many a fight. And probably Latisa some- Wallace is my, uh, she's my sorority sister. <laughs> We know each other very well. <laughs> did not know that. <laughs> I was not a member of that sorority, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so, uh, all right, Kina, uh, we were talking today, and I just would like to carry on a little bit of that conversation, just give a sense of uh, what we'll be discussing tonight, because you said a lot of insightful things that woke me up, uh, got me out of my COVID funk. Thank you for doing that. Um <laughs> And mainly you were talking about being a justice Democrat uh, running against the party, so to speak. And by the way, if you should prevail in your primary against Danny K. Davis, you will watch in amazement the 180 as all these party leaders who worked against you. Er, that's the sound of a car turning around. Uh, I've coming back to uh, join you. I've seen that happen uh, in Chicago politics mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Uh, but uh, anyway, talk what, uh, what it's like uh, in terms of fundraising, uh, in terms of being up against the powerful of your party uh, when you're running against an entrenched incumbent like uh, Danny K. Davis. You know, I, I want progressives to know there is a lot of reasons for people to be feel disillusioned because we have seen 
candidates and elected officials run on one thing, say one thing, and then once we do the sweat equity to get them elected, they do a complete opposite of what they ran on. And so we cannot be gaslit in this moment. In this moment, um, we need disruptors and we need to double down on a lot of what the progressive space and movement work has been talking about. And one of those things is fighting on the front lines of these protests, writing legislation in the public policy rooms, and yes, us getting elected to these offices. Now, um, my situation is unique because I've lived in this district my entire life. I tell people that Congressman Davis has been my representative since I was five years old. Grew up in the South Austin community, still live in South Austin. Um, and now my nephew is going to be eight years old tomorrow, and Congressman Davis is still <laughs> the congressperson. Um, I've taken a bit of umbrage with the response from Democratic leadership because I am a young black woman in the Democratic Party. And as we know, black women are the backbone of this party. The response from people like Speaker Pelosi, uh, caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries um, and other folks has been not only are you not welcome to the party, Kina, but we are going to pony up resources to stop you from getting into the party. This is important. For us to note that this is, uh, you know, to me, um, just a stoppage of young people, women, people of color from expanding the Democratic Party because we don't have a Republican challenger in this race, Ben. Um, so there's no reason in a safe, deep, dark blue district like Illinois 7 to raise a single dime for a Democratic primary because whoever wins on June 28th is going to win the seat. And number two, we don't need to just elect congressional members. Democrats need to win up and down the ballot in Texas, in Georgia, in Arizona, even in our neighbors in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes running for the Senate, right? There are so many other races that they could be engaging in, but they have taken upon themselves to particularly hone in on our race, raise money, and also, you know, use just untrue messaging um, about these issues. Fighting for fortifying our public education system, uh, a single payer Medicare for all healthcare system, fighting as a survivor of everyday gun violence and stop and fighting for a future free of gun violence. Those are not far left agendas. Those are common sense agendas that many Americans agree with. I'm, I particularly see the light. Well, I always saw the light, uh, uh, Akina, when, when it comes to single payer, having had the COVID yep. for the last week. Uh, and having talked to so many other people in the world of COVID uh, who can't get access to uh, the medication that they need, uh, not certain, just try getting a hold of a doctor to give them a little advice. I, yep. I, uh, well, yeah. Well, the number one thing COVID taught us, right, Ben, and, and you had me on your short in 2020 when I was running in the primary and I was running on the, we got to, you know, push for the Medicare for all. It was a presidential year. I remember the conversation very distinctly and the pushback we got from whether it was establishment people or quote unquote moderates or whoever is that, well, I love my employer based insurance. And then COVID hit and it cratered employer-based insurance. And this is what we talk about, why we need to elect people who have the foresight, who live these everyday issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love my uh, employer-based insurance. And all of a sudden you don't have an employer for whatever reason. That's it. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I, 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 I remember the conversations well. That That is, again, that's like 
the Dems, they put lines in your mouths. Like nobody loves their employer coverage. You know what I'm saying? Nobody loves it. I know it it may be afraid of the other thing, but no one loves it. But uh, it's not like your pet dog. I love my pet dog. You know what I'm saying? But no one. Um, So I probably asked you this the last time. Uh, and but I'm going to ask it to you again. And uh, so, yes, this is your second run uh, against Danny K. Uh, K. Davis. Uh, and um, I, I just got a feeling about this race. Uh, I really do. I just have a feeling it could be a surprise. You know, just the expectation in Chicago is that always the incumbent will win. Uh, the yeah. other the other way things happen in Chicago. Uh, and I'm wondering if this is um, playing out national as well. Where the powerful, the powers that be in the party, they take you aside and go, look, you know, just wait your time. What are you doing, man? You just, just, would you just calm down? That's Danny K. Davis. Just calm down. Why don't you run for Cook County Board Commissioner? Or why don't you run for Alderwoman? Yeah. Or why don't you, uh, Metropolitan Water Rack? Or uh, whatever. Whatever they, I, I got a place for you. If, if you, if you do the right thing and say the right thing, I'll slate you for, and then fill in the blanks. Are you getting those kinds of overtures, uh, Keenan? We we got them in 2020. We got them in 2020. Run for alderman. Run for state rep. And what that indicates to me is that you don't think that I, you, you, you think that I have the ability to legislate. You just don't want me to have this level of a platform. But what we've always said was that the reason why I'm running for Congress on my campaign is that these issues are comprehensive. When we talk about gun violence, when we talk about health care, when we talk about um, closing the wealth gap in this nation, it can't just happen here in the state of Illinois or the city of Chicago. Um, but really, you know, a lot of it has been, well, just wait till Davis retires. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll just run one more time and just wait. And we know what that means. You know, when Congressman Davis retires, we're seeing this play out. It's the same thing that happened with Congressman Bobby Rush. There are 18 candidates in the race now. It waters down the field. It splits the votes. And it's really, it's a hindrance on democracy because we should be able to debate these issues in a real way. People should be able to, you know, uh, see what candidate best aligns with the district and we should move from there. And so, um, and also this is not how democracy works. You don't, there's no line, right? <laughs> like uh, anybody could run for this seat. It's just that um, me and my team have the political courage to do it. And so um, with big risk comes big reward. And I hope that, you know, we, we don't see this as a losing opportunity at all. We're building donor base. We're building a volunteer list and we're going to continue to help other progressives win as well across Illinois. Well, let's talk and about the country. Yeah. I was about to say uh, other progressives running for Congress, uh, justice Democrats running for Congress in districts throughout the country uh, and uh, in the Pittsburgh area in Texas, Cisneros Lee, talk a bit, a bit uh, about you, uh, your alliances with these uh, almost all of them are women I'm, uh, as I just rattled yeah. off uh, talk about your alliances with them go ahead I'm really proud of this Justice Democrats plate um, that was put together in this primary session I think they really understood the assignment that if, if Democrats truly want to be the party of the big tent then we have to stop the hemorrhaging of young people people of color women um, those from working class backgrounds uh, who could come forth and talk about the real issues and so, um, uh, yeah, Jessica, Summer Lee just won her race in Pennsylvania 12. She's the first, she is poised to become the first black woman in the history of their state to emerge in the delegation. 
Um, and then Jessica Cisneros just came off of her runoff and she's down 170 votes. Um, and right now they are, she has not conceded. Um, and so they are going through the process to make sure that every single vote vote is counted. Um, but what I could tell you is that Summer Lee and Jessica Cisneros, who, who have both ran fierce and brave pro- progressive campaigns, are now um, all eyes on Illinois and our June 28th primary. They are helping us fundraise. They are getting out to their volunteers and they're helping us build the infrastructure so that we can have a, a historic win here in Illinois 7. Keenan, when you go up against a powerhouse like uh, Davis, uh, Congressman Davis, and that's Danny Davis, not Rodney Davis. We have two Davis congressmen in the state of Illinois. Uh, you're going to go up against uh, the 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 power of Nancy Pelosi, the power of Hakeem Jeffries. You mentioned them already, uh, and uh, the, the, all the advantages of incumbents. In terms of uh, campaign contributions, how much money are you running against, literally, has been poured into uh, Danny Davis's campaign? Do you know? Well, um, we know that he has over half a million dollars cash on hand. Mm-hmm. And um, within the last like 72 hours, um, a PAC has poured $125,000 into what we call independent expenditure, which means that they can run TV ads or digital ads or, you know, what have you. And, and so our primary is still 27 days away. So there's a lot more money that could be spent and pumped into this race at, at um, from this point on. And really we're, we, overall have out fundraised Congressman Davis with the most small dollar individual donations, um, nearly 10,000 small dollar individual donations to the campaign. And, you know, we're doing the people power. We have over uh, or near a thousand volunteers signed up. Um, over a hundred of them are active every week, knocking doors, making phone calls, postcard writing. And so I think big money is not going to win this race. Big organizing is. But it is important, you know, for the progressive space to say that the way that we win these races is organize people and organize money. And so we need to make sure that we're keeping that momentum going. Uh, but, yeah, he has PACs that are run by Democratic leadership. Um, he's accept corporate PAC donations from BP, ExxonMobil, pharmaceutical companies. And so um, that's what we're running against. Um, I have accepted zero corporate PAC dollars. And I refuse to. And we've been able to out fundraise him. All right. Uh, I will uh, close with one last question because my next guest, uh, Lee Allen Jones, has uh, joined us. Uh, and I'm going to bring him on in a little bit. Uh, but Keenan Collins, just want to repeat one more time. Keenan and I uh, and Latisa Wallace will be uh, doing a show tonight. I uh, will be recording that show uh, for Indivisible Illinois, but we will be recording it at, and dropping it uh, uh, on our podcast, our humble little podcast on Monday. So just want to uh, urge everybody to check that out. Uh, you can find all the information you need uh, to listen to the live show uh, by just Googling uh, our names and Indivisible. Uh, if not, just wait until Monday and we'll drop the show. Uh, I don't want people to leave uh, this conversation, Keena, thinking that you're only critical of the leadership of the Democratic Party. Uh, I, Everybody who listens to my show knows I'm ripping MAGA 24-7 uh, generally. Uh, I feel uh, a tremendous amount of concern and fear about where our country is heading. And this Republican gubernatorial primaries got me scared uh, here in Illinois because I have a feeling that MAGA yeah. could take control of Illinois. So just a few words that uh, your attitude about the MAGA threat in our country right now. Go ahead, Keena. 
mean, um, I'm a young black woman from the west side of Chicago. White supremacy has always been um, a problem here in the United States of America. And I think that that's what's fueling their base. And, um, you know, Donald Trump came in and he said the quiet part out loud that a lot of people were saying behind the scenes. And so um, when we look at things like the 94 crime bill and mass incarceration that ripped apart black and brown communities, you know, that <laughs> that was something that really happened. And those are policies that are embedded into our country that have um, created a disadvantage for working class people and people of color. Um, and then, you know, we have this conversation of Roe getting ready to be repealed. Mm. This is about power and control. If the GOP and the MAGA crew really believed in the sanctity of life, why are we banning abortions before we're banning assault rifles in this country? Fourth graders were literally gunned down. Ten black folks in Buffalo were gunned down um, because of the grips of white supremacy. And so, um, of course, it goes without saying that (laughs) we don't agree, you know, with what they're doing, but we shouldn't be shocked because this has been embedded in policy and it has been embedded in the way that that poor people in this country have been treated for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so... um, that's why it's important to elect people who come from backgrounds where both of my parents were union workers. I'm a survivor of everyday gun violence. I believe in making sure that we have access to healthcare, education, and housing as a human right. And we should not be beating that back in the Democratic Party. We should be welcoming that because that's how we beat the MAGA crowd. All right. Well put. Keen, I look forward to the show tonight with you and Latisa Wallace. And uh, take care. I'll talk to you then. All right. All right. Thanks. You guys have a great day. Uh, very good. That's Keenan Collins. She's running against Danny K. Davis for Congress uh, in the 7th Congressional District. I'm going to shift gears and bring on Lee Allen Jones, good friend of the show. Lee Allen Jones, a little to the left of uh, me uh, and Keenan Collins, I would say. Uh, he was Maybe more great, to the right, then. Maybe yeah. more to the right. <laughs> Maybe these days, more to the right. Uh, but back, back and I was, you know what, uh, Lee Allen, I was trying to think the last time I voted independent. I don't know if you heard that part of the conversation with Keena Collins. Uh, she's running against Danny K. Davis in the Democratic primary for the 7th Congressional. The winner uh, has no opponent in the, um, uh, in, on the from the Republican side. So I'm trying to think, is there anybody running as a Green in that district? But, but whoever wins this race will be uh, the next congressperson uh, from the 7th Congressional District. And then I was trying to recall the last time I voted for an independent, somebody who was not affiliated with the Democratic Party, uh, in a general election, Rich Whitney, I believe, was in 2006. I want to say I voted for you in uh, in 2010. Was that when you ran? Yeah, it would have been as a Green. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I may have been scared in the voting Democrat, so I apologize. Uh, for not having voted for you, probably should have voted for you. Um, I appreciate your candor. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I mean, it would be easy to say, yeah, I voted for you. And <laughs> of course, there's no real way to. Uh, to I understand. Determine. I get it. Uh, anyway, so uh, before I move on to what I really want to talk to you about, about crime in Chicago and Cam Buckner's uh, plan for Chicago. Cam Buckner, of course, is the state rep from the South Side. He may be your state rep, uh, Lee Allen Jones, uh, who's now running for mayor. And he just released his plan. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, the changing of the guard, uh, potential changing of the guard? You have the first congressional district where there's like 20 people running. I forget how many uh, to replace Bobby Rush. And then uh, you have Keena Collins doing it the old fashioned way, actually charging and actually challenging the incumbent. You know what I mean? It takes a little guts there as opposed to just waiting 
you know, like everybody else in Chicago politics, they wait for the king or queen to leave office and then they all run. Do you have any thoughts about the changing of the guard? You've been around for a while. Your thoughts? I don't. I don't, I don't really know if it's a changing of the guard. I mean, I think it's it's, it's good political theater. Uh, but when you look at the general landscape of what they're politicking about, these are some really difficult challenges that we're dealing with. Uh, when we take into consideration what happened, uh, you know, down in uh, Valde, Texas, what happened in Buffalo, uh, what happened in Chicago over the weekend. Uh, and what happens in Chicago when it gets in, it gets warmer? So, um, you know, I'm you know I appreciate the fervor for democracy, but the uh, the real challenges are, are really you know seeming really really insurmountable when you look at uh, that these things are that are core to you know what our country is about when it comes to gun violence um, and when it comes to democracy. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, those two things, gun violence and democracy. Uh, more and more in my mind, um, the two are intertwined. And uh, it's this is me speaking. Get your response. I've talked about this and I've written about it there. To me, it's the gun cult. Uh, MAGA has become a gun cult. And um, our country uh, in in many degrees has become a gun cult. People worship guns. They love the power they get from a gun, uh, the power that just securing and owning that gun gives them uh, the sense that uh, you can, you, you will always uh, be vindicated. Uh, if you shoot the other person that somehow or other, that power uh, makes you secure and safe. I think it's a form of madness. Uh, Lee Allen Jones, I think it's been in, embedded in our culture for about as long as I can remember, we've never done anything about it. We ignore it. Uh, and now we're seeing it played out literally, as you said, uh, on a daily basis throughout the country, uh, city of Chicago, it's, it's almost like routine shootings, uh, with a summary on Tuesday of how many people were shot. And then we go on with our life. Um, that's how I view it. I feel this is like a, a like a deep and abiding and bizarre love for, uh, weaponry. Uh, and the ability to shoot somebody and the power that gives you your thoughts on what I just had to say. So, you know, violence is rooted in the DNA of our country. Um, and the gun is a part of our culture. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, the gun represents so much. It represents liberty to some people. It can represent oppression. Um, you know, if you look at the fact that if, uh, you know, if the native Americans had to fight with their bare hands, as opposed to having to fight with those muskets, you know, against muskets and gunpowder, it might have changed the tide of things. Um, so, I mean, it's a it's a, it's a real challenge because you know it's so like you said it's so embedded in the culture, but it's so embedded in the politics. I mean, even when you have someone Joe Biden, you know, President Biden, you know, talking about gun violence, and we go back and do the research, he has people. I want to say from BlackRock. Uh, the if I'm being correct, BlackRock, the, the investment bank, they they're heavily invested in guns. And I think that issue came out before with the AR-15 and a lot of the parent companies of these guns. I mean, you know, he has people from that investment bank that work in his administration and they've made money on guns. The fact that he just sent a, a, a 53 billion dollar age package, uh, you know, to the Ukraine basically to do this institutional violence. Uh, you know, at, 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 at war scale. And, you know, when you look at Taiwan, so we, and we look at all of these things, it's really, uh, it's really depressing. Uh, when you just look at the, the, the scale of violence and you can't talk about one form of violence 
and dismiss the other based upon your politics. It's all, you know, kind of comes into violence. And, you know, you can't talk about, you know, AR-15s when you're sending, you know, triple M7 howitzers. Somebody's going to, you know, going to die, you know, in this very provocative manner based on this weaponry. And it, it, I just don't know where it ends. Cause it, it's, it's very illogical because it's very inconsistent. And a lot of people, you know, thrive consistency uh, within this state of chaos. Yeah. T- take that a little further uh, and just lead people through your thought process on that. Uh, Lee Allen, I, um, I got a column in the back of my mind that I've been intending to write for a while. COVID uh, deterred me from it, uh, but I shall prevail over COVID. I hope touch wood. Uh, and uh, that is, draw out that connection a little more between uh, making money in America off the sale of weaponry that's are prevalent here and then uh, selling uh, or I don't even selling them. They're just uh, uh, arming Ukraine. I'll make the argument that, well, Ukraine is using the weaponry uh, to fight off uh, an invasion from a tyrant. Uh, and so as a result, uh, in, in a way we're, we're like saving lives by killing lives. That would be the argument. Uh, I, I could just see ready to pounce on that Lee Allen Jones. So pounce away. Go ahead. I, th- I think it's, you just have to ask yourself, how much is this destruction costing? I mean, we're dealing with inflation. Basically. But yet we're still fully funding this chaos and violence. And, you know, it's an industry. I mean, it's an industry. I mean, look at the number one top gun. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You keep you sort of fading in and out, but I'm I'm here. Yeah, can you hear me? I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Just think about that. The number one movie this week in the box office is Top Gun. Mm-hmm. If you listen to the music, and I've, I've mentioned to this repeatedly to you, if you listen to a lot of this music, it is nothing but misogyny and violence. And, I mean, look at the fact that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I mean, we have a very violent culture, and it, and it, it seems to be the, the fabric of our society. Even though we, we don't want to believe it, it seems to be that way because it's always here. Uh, okay, and uh, so go back to uh, arming Ukraine uh, and the correlation between that and the gun violence in our country. It, I mean, the government, how can you be and say that you want to ban AR-15s, 9 millimeters, and high-capacity weapons when you're sending weapons that are going to murder people by the hundreds and by the thousands? I mean, I don't know why Joe Biden is why. How can you be consistent yet inconsistent and yet say you're a leader instead of, you know, in the Ukraine? Biden should be calling for peace right now. And I think if he used the the power of his office, I think he could get a ceasefire in Ukraine as opposed to sending weapons and being a provocateur. I think Joe Biden could be could have be a serious advocate against uh, against, uh, you know, something with assault weapons, these high capacity weapons. If he was willing to be honest with the discussion and not playing politics. However, the ignorance is fueling the violence, and the violence has a lot of money associated with it. I mean, that's why you can't get rid of these handguns and you can't get, a, get rid of these high capacity rifles. 
it, it's, it's, it's a lot of money in this stuff. I mean, look at the the Boston weapon down in Uvalde. I mean, he would, I mean, there are a lot of wet money in, in death. And somebody has to call that out and have the courage to say so, because a lot of these plans dismiss the fact that there's a lot of, uh, 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 uh a great deal of resources wrapped up in death in our society. And mm. somebody has to address it. All. Yeah. By the way, I just have to point out uh, that riff you went off about Top Gun, which I've not seen. And I don't know if I will see it. I, I don't think I saw the first one. We Allen, I have a confession to make. I can't remember it all. Uh, all those Tom Cruise movies from the eighties sort of come together. Uh, but I, the, Gabe Kapler, who's the manager of the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, yeah you never saw the first one. Got yeah. to think about it. What was Tom Gunn about? I uh, do not know because I, I didn't see it. So what is it about? Yeah. Leon? Tom Gunn is basically, yeah. you got to think about a lot of those movies uh, that came out in the 80s that were basically, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can Go you ahead. hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Can you yes. hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. What I'm saying is, if you go back to all of those movies mm -hmm. that came out in the '80s, they were nothing but propaganda to fight the Cold War. I mean, think about Rambo, Commando, uh, you know, Top Gun. So it was basically this this movie that was basically pornography for fighting the Cold War. And Top Gun was was a franchise, you know, basically off of that. And so, you know, here it is again, it's being used to use, you know, violence and valor to, you know, to inculcate another generation on, you know, principles that are really expensive and that are really misguided. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it comes out at a, very, a time when America is really trying to confront the violence in our culture. Uh, and you're right. I have, <laughs> I've not heard or seen a lot of people draw the correlation uh, between the celebration of Top Gun uh, and the violence that's uh, going on in America today. Until you just did it right now. Someone on the far left or right, wherever you are at these days. You don't. Nobody wants to address it because it, it it's what fuels the ability for it to be up, uh, subconscious, where you can just do it. I mean, think about what's going on. The fact that we've completely forgot about what happened in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. We completely forgot about Afghanistan and the fact that, you know, we've done this thing before. But the violence is so prevalent and so seamless that you can go from one violent, expensive uh, paradox to another violent, uh, extreme paradox and, and, and basically have no questions to uh, to challenge. How can this just be so consistent yet inconsistent, but yet consistent? It's an oxymoron. Yeah, by the way, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you're coming in loud and clearly, Alan Jones. So just keep that wherever you are, wherever you have hit this sweet spot, just keep it because uh, you're coming in loud and clear. I heard absolutely everything you said. I want to repeat what I was uh, going to say. Gabe Kapler, who is the uh, manager of the San Francisco Giants, announced he was going to do a protest. I was just so upset about uh, the violence in our country. Uh, and he just said, I'm not going to uh, participate in the ceremony at the outset of a game where we stand for the national anthem in a public way because I just don't think our country's uh, going in the right direction on this. And he was reflecting that uh, standing for the national anthem, there was a moment of silence for the victims. The kids were killed in Texas. Uh, and then they played a Metallica's version of the national anthem, which is kind of an angry, militaristic sound. 
And he goes, what are we, where are we at? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's almost, what's that song by the Rolling Stones? Uh, the Devil's, the Devil. What, what's, you sympathy might for the Devil. Sympathy for the Devil. That's exactly what this is. If you go listen to Sympathy for the Devil, but you got to think about it. Even a song like that, as graphic, as, as insightful, and you think about the time when that song was created, how commercialized it's become. I mean, you have billionaires listening to this song on their yachts as they exploit the world with this as their theme song. And so we we don't want to connect it because it, it, if you do, it really exposes who we are as a society. It doesn't expose the politics. It doesn't expose the financial system. It doesn't expose the inequities. It, it demonstrates that we as a people are willing to engage and tolerate these things for some kind of macabre that we don't want to resolve. All right, let's uh, bring it down to the local and as an assignment for the show, uh, I asked you to uh, read uh, Cam Buckner's uh, prescription for what he would do if he were elected mayor uh, for crime in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, I know you dutifully read it. Uh, and your general thoughts about the future of Chicago uh, if Cam Buckner is our mayor. Go ahead. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I respect Cam on a, a lot of levels. Like I said, I've known Cam uh, since he was in high school. He played for a great man at Morgan Park High School uh, and Leslie Spurlock, uh, who's a frat brother of mine. And, you know, I think I think the world of Cam. Uh, but, you know, when you start looking at, you know, jumping for these seats, you just got to ask yourself, you know, you know, what what are we doing in the positions we're in? I don't think the mayor of Chicago has any more power than the state rep at this point. I think all of them are basically playing cards with the same hand, no matter what the executive title is associated with it. So, you know, as I read through his plan and I think about his candidacy with all the respect uh, and admiration for Cam as he, as he makes this initiative, you know, in his career, uh, you know, it, it sounds a lot like the Amara Enya candidacy of, uh, you know, four year of, uh, you know, you know, four years, three years ago. And so I just don't know how to take any of it serious because I don't think that demographic reaches across the boundaries where even a cogent pl uh, plan that he put out there has any real form of doing anything that, you know, Lightfoot or Emmanuel could solve. So I think it's, it's kind of Pollyannish. Uh, uh, I, I like the fact that what I heard about the fact that he wanted to look at, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of these crimes that are starting in social media and starting online and, and dealing with that in, in, in some kind of way, because that has uh, transformed how we have to look at criminal justice. Uh, but at the very same time, it opens up, you know, big government and big tech. And we have a lot of big other issues that we haven't resolved in terms of trying to fuse something uh, to try to solve a social problem that that has been created by, you know, social uh, injustice. Well, one aspect, if we look away, part of uh, his, his, his view of how, what to do with crime in Chicago is like twofold. On one hand, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, hiring more police. So he's talking about filling uh, 1,600 police vacancies. Uh, and um, so you want to 
we're not relying on canceling days off and overtime uh, as much. Uh, hiring more detectives, so presumably they could uh, more murders or crimes would be solved or at least uh, investigated, so that there's a sense uh, that people are being held accountable uh, for the crimes uh, that they commit. Uh, then he gets to the stuff that sings well to me, uh, and he talks about investing in uh, uh, park district and uh, public schools activities. And this is where your all your worlds come together, Ali Allen. Look at your thoughts about this, the state of things in Chicago. Uh, you uh, are a former football coach. You love sports. Uh, you're not one of these lefties uh, who just has disdain uh, for sports. I, um, I feel as though the city of Chicago does a terrible job of outreach when it comes uh, to uh, sports and kids in the city and introducing kids to all kinds of sports at the earliest age, uh, making sure uh, that there are park district employees on hand who know the community, know the kids uh, to lead the kids to various uh, leagues from the earliest age. So there's no excuse for a kid uh, not being able to participate uh, in some kind of organized activity and not just sports, but art, drama. Some kids aren't meant for sports, obviously. Uh, this is something I've noticed since I moved to the city of Chicago. And in my opinion, it's gotten worse. In your opinion, as a guy who knows a lot about sports in the city of Chicago and coaching, where are we as a city when it comes to providing recreational activities to kids? I think the challenges in all of this is, is, we, 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 we undermine the real fundamental challenges that we have in the city and what's compiled over generations. And that's been the quality of life of families and what families look like. Wouldn't you say? What do you mean? Go, go into that a little more. Like what families look like. We're not looking at two-parent households. Uh, we're not looking at communities where you have parents with the same level of integrity and parenting that may have existed 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So when we look at the challenges that we're dealing with, I tend to believe, and in my observation, the greatest challenges exist within these families. And it's becoming expensive to deal with these challenges because we talk about the breakdown of the family in different ways. We talk about the breakdown of families when we talk about mental health. Right. That's a breakdown in the family. When we talk about uh, uh, what's the word that I want to use? here? I don't want to talk about youth violence because it diminishes the generations that we've dealt with this. We call this juvenile delinquency. This goes back to every community in Chicago having juvenile delinquency being a part of the cultural dynamics of that community and the ability to resolve, uh, you know, what juvenile delinquency exists from. And, and, and this is a term that goes back to the early 20th century. Am I wrong? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to the early 20th century. I uh, I don't go back uh, to the earliest part of the 20th century. Uh, I'm not that old. And uh, I've only lived in the city of Chicago since the 80s. And I could tell you the city of Chicago, my humble opinion, does a terrible job of outreach. And if you're going to overcome what you're talking about, uh, broken families or dysfunctional families, you got to overcome that. You got to aggressively go at it. You got to go at it like you're trying to sell a market. You're selling a, sell a product on the market. You know, you, you got to send, you have to send somebody into the public schools of Chicago and go today we're doing flag football. 
We're going to be out there at three o'clock. I need your parents to sign this permission slip. I'm going to be back here tomorrow. I want those permission slips signed. You got to, and then if the parent doesn't sign it, and I've been here, Lee Allen Jones, I've been here trying to get a kid to get his mom to sign a parent permission slip, and the mother doesn't trust me. Who's this guy? <laughs> Chicago. But, but, but there's legitimacy in the lack of trust. You got to think. I, I mean, I, when I Whatever. talk about I'm not, wait, let me finish. I'm not hating on the lack of trust. I'm there the next day. Okay, here I am. This yeah. is me. You could come and watch the practice if you don't trust me. I don't blame you for not trusting me. Come watch the practice. In fact, you could go stand at those cones over there and run the kids through the cones. You could do this as well as I do. I'm not Vince Lombardi here. All right? So if you don't trust me, that's fine. Show up. Run the kids through the cones. You be a coach, too. Here, you can get to wear a whistle. You know? So I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I've never seen it. I've never seen it on the parts of the powers of be in the city of Chicago. If some kid miraculously finds his way to coach Spurlock and gets involved in that system and learns how to be a good offensive guard or linebacker, it is an accident. It's not because somebody went knocking on his door. Go ahead. Defend the system, uh, Leon. I want to hear this. Go ahead. Uh, I'm not defending it. I think in my experience in working in the communities that we are continuing to talk about programming um, and processes and administrative process to deal with. When you talk about that parent, you're talking about somebody that too comes from a, in, in most cases, a broken situation. And so, you know, that's why it was difficult for me to stay working within the Chicago. I never really worked in Chicago public schools. I always volunteered as a coach, but volunteering as a coach, you recognize that the, that, that when you be, when you get involved in this child's life, you're not, you're involved in, in, in that whole family structure because that's where the challenges to deal with that kid are going to exist from. And so now when you start working with the family, when you started working with the kid, they don't, they don't, you know, if you're about, you don't have that level of time and you can't really begin to frame the things that can resolve the challenges because you don't have a system that rewards somebody with that level of observation. And then you, you know, and, and more importantly, we've allowed a lot of these institutions to become jobs programs. And when you talk about becoming jobs programs, you're talking about putting people in these institutions that have not been trained, nor do they have a desire to be trained to formally understand what their role is to function within those institutions. And now you have broken people on both sides. You have parents that are broken, children that are broken, people that are administrators that are broken. And yet this is all coming together in an attempt to produce resilience that is really impossible. That's why when I hear a lot of these public policies, I know just off the top that it's somebody trying to demonstrate their formal education without understanding that the real, the real ability to solve this is really impossible within the, 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 the paradigms that we have and we're framing to try to solve it. Well, I, uh, I could tell you, I have no problem with it, it being a jobs program. I have absolutely no problem whatsoever. And I don't understand. We're spending all this money uh, for a casino and then they brag about, well, it's going to create jobs. So somehow or other in the minds of the people of the city of Chicago, a job working at a casino is more valuable than let's say a job coaching a kid. It's all public dollars underlying the money. I don't understand why it's not a good uh, park district job with a pension. 
And I, uh, this is where it becomes tricky, Benny. You got to think this is what I'm leading to when you say you make it a job program. I don't have a problem okay. with people getting a job working in public service. I have no issue with that. But it be, when, what I say that it becomes a jobs program is that it creates a larger liability. Now, think about what happened with those uh, those child sex assault scandals that happened within CPS. Those things are correlated when you're bringing in people that are just there for a job and that are not there to be passionate about children. That creates other risks. And that's and that and that's been a systemic problem, not only within the African and all of these communities. When you're putting people in these positions and there's all this vulnerability, there's vulnerability amongst the parents, there's vulnerability amongst the children, there are vulnerability, vulnerability amongst the administrators. And all of this vulnerability is, is undermining public trust and therefore the resolution as opposed to the reaction to crisis. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I I hear what you're saying. And I'm, I'm also saying that you, you got to be able to do both things at once. You've got to be able to set, uh, set up uh, programs uh, to get, uh, g- give kids activities uh, and, le- and give them an opportunity to show the world what they got uh, in whatever endeavor it would be. Even if it's just sitting under a tree reading a book, like this kid's a good reader. Let's get this kid more I, books. I don't, I don't but, but, but that goes back to something, Ben. It goes back to we've gotten so used to engaging within this juvenile delinquency discussion and over-administrating it and not saying what's the first line of defense in juvenile delinquency. It is the family. We're saying now that what should be family activities are now going to become public service. Why well, time out. And let me just finish the point I was going to make. You should be able to do that and protect kids uh, from predators. You should be able to do both. In my humble opinion, that was where I was going with that. Uh, and I think that w- one works with the other. Like if, if uh, like having a good uh, after school or preschool program works well with uh, bolstering a family. Absolutely. No question of my, if one, if for no other reason, you got to get a parent to sign a slip. I'm telling you right now, you're smiling. You just go try to get parents to sign a permission slip for something. First of all, will the kid bring it home? (laughs) Second of all, will, you know, whoever the mom, the dad, whatever, will they, I don't know about this. You know, it's everything. They're both. There's a correlation. It's, you're forcing people to get involved with their kids in a, in a, in a way. So I, I think the two worked hand in hand. Go ahead. I don't dispute it. I mean, but like, I'll go back to my original point. When you talk about administrating these social programs and not identifying that there are dynamics within these families that make that, that make the ability to produce resilience in that child that much more difficult. If we're not dealing with that fundamental reality, we're not going to get closer to solving that issue, no matter how impassioned people like you and me are. I've, I've ran my head against the wall trying to save the lives of young men uh, that have been in the system. And I can, I, you know, I don't, I can demonstrate where I see that there's a breakdown culturally within these institutions, within the leadership, within these institutions, institutions that they are as much a part of the issue as the issue that that are obvious to us all right that's about as good a spot to leave it as any i uh, am sweating like a dog up here in my attic with this covid uh and uh all fired up uh i think i know uh leon you and i are basically coming on the same page uh, on the same page in this i know we are uh and um 
I have hopes uh, for Cam Buckner just putting out what he has to say. Uh, I'm hoping that it it catches on in the city of Chicago when he talks about the need to, to fortify uh, programs, recreational programs for kids, because generally, it, 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 let me let me put it this way: if somebody has a good idea on from the outside, and the mayor of Chicago thinks he or she uh, could get some good publicity off of that idea, they'll take that portion, steal it, and use it as their own. And ultimately, just because Cam Buckner came up with the idea, if it happens because Lori Lightfoot wants to get reelected, I can live with that. You know, I didn't see her doing it on her own until Cam Buckner came along, but that's Chicago, Lee Allen Jones. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we tend to overlook uh, what's really obvious. So I think Jim some- came from World Sports Chicago, so he has a background in that and working with the philanthropic community on initiatives that, uh, you know, that could be done at scale. But to me, I, I think great concept. I just know that um, and how I look at it, you don't have the administrative integrity for any of these programs to be effective because I just don't think you have strong middle management, nor do you have uh, the sophistication you need in people that are going to work at that level with young people for it to be anything more than what we've already seen. And so that's my my argument. It's not the fact that it's not a good initiative. All of these things look well on paper. The ability to execute them and knowing do you have the personnel to deal with this challenge? And I don't think on any level, if, if we look into this, and I thought about this, Benny, this is going to shock you when you really just think about the concept. There are summer jobs programs that are being funded, right, by city agencies and local governments, right? Yeah. You know how ridiculous that is when you have everybody looking for employees at $15, $20 to hour. Yeah. You know how ridiculous that is. This is where we have become delusional. If every kid that wanted a job just went and got a job, the government would need to have summer jobs. That's, that's a, that's a, that's shenanigans. Yeah. Don't get me started on capitalism. Because we're running I mean, out of time. No, but look at the politics in this. No, that- I know the politics. Listen, I remember when um, this is way before your time. Uh, Manfred Bird was in charge of the uh, public schools of Chicago. It was way before your time. And that's how long I've been doing this. Uh, and some muckety mucks corporate heads in Chicago essentially came up with this program, which the Tribune dutifully reported, because this is so Tribune, what, what I'm about to say. That man for Burp, uh, that these executives promised to hire kids, Chicago public school kids, for their corporations if man for Bird, who was the head of this Chicago public schools at the time, broke up the patronage system, uh, the bureaucracy at City Hall, uh, at the public schools. And I'm like, what does one have to do with the other, Lee Allen Jones? Why is, it, <laughs> why is this extortion? If you need kids to work at your corporations, just hire them. What do you care if man for Bird? breaks up the bureaucracy or not. I don't know. I, I couldn't understand that. It's like, I do these jobs. Do you have a need for these jobs? Yes or no. If you do, then hire the Chicago public school children. But it was just PR that the Tribune was uh, churning out Lee Allen and feeding people. It's, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the political shenanigans are always on full display in Chicago. I don't care what generation it is. If it's Patty Boyle, if <laughs> William, if it's Sir Mac, it has always been here. It's one of the most consistent elements within the system. And when you just talk about market dynamics, the supply and demand never meet in Chicago. 
the supply and demand never meet. And you got a thing, you got University of Chicago here that has taught, you know, you know, free market economics. And even they have some distant inconsistencies within their free market piece when they dictate everything where they're at. They don't allow free market. If they allow free market participation, University of Chicago would have never gotten to be the behemoth that's become if it was based on free market principles. Absolutely. So when we look at Chicago, it's really where supply and demand never meet. And if you just go from that point of saying Chicago is where supply and demand never meet, it makes sense in every institution that you would want to, you know, put some, some, some objectivity to. Absolutely. Don't get me started. University of Chicago with this big paw for that TIF money over on 57th Street, believing in free markets. Wait, free markets? They're not free if you're taking my public tax dollars. Just saying, University of Chicago. All right. Uh, we have run out of time. And uh, Lee Allen Jones, I haven't even gotten around to ask you about Paul Vallis, the other candidate who announced he was running for mayor of the city of Chicago. Real fast. Quick thoughts, Lee Allen Jones, on Paul Vallis, former head of you may have been in the public schools. I was, he was the superintendent when yeah. I was. I I know Paul Vallis very well. Yeah. Um. You know, based upon when he was a superintendent at Chicago Public Schools when I was a student at King High School. So I've I've had the opportunity to engage Paul uh, on one on one. I think Paul Vallis. It's it just difficult. Um, to really look at Paul having you know more viability than he has right now, just being a concerned citizen. I don't know what, what what he can't do with his with his many years in government, and I'm pretty sure private sector con, you know contacts that he can't do something outside the sphere of government to make the impact that he's believing he needs the fifth floor for. I don't I really just don't know why he why he hasn't been able to put himself in a position like Arnie has and having some type of corporate philanthropy allow him to institute what he believes is a better process for education, for public safety, uh, for social inequity, and a lot of the things that are on his platform. I, I, I don't think he needs the fifth floor to do that if we're looking at supply and demand, because there is a demand, there is a supply, and I don't know why people need the politics to continue to align supply and demand that politics is never, politics is not meant to bring supply and demand into order. It's meant to create the chaos that it exists in. Well, uh, to probably answer your question, you have to go in the psyche of Paul Vallis. And to do that, you have to uh, consider this. He's a little older than you. He came of age when Richard J. Daly uh, was the mayor of the city of Chicago, the ultimate king who ruled the city. Uh, I think it's somewhere in the back of his mind. That's always been his dream. And he's determined to do what he has to do to achieve that dream. He wants to be the Yeah, I went to public schools, but that that sounds sort of like, what's the... uh, the whale, the, 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 what's the, the, the Moby Dick? It sounds kind of like Moby Dick. He's Moby chasing Dick. the whale. <laughs> yeah, he's chasing the whale. He's cha- Captain like... Ahab. <laughs> and he doesn't look out. That that whale will swallow you. All right, Lee Allen Jones, thank you very much. Uh, and I uh, also want to thank Keenan Collins uh, for coming on the show. She did a great job as well. And I remind everybody, uh, I will be do, hosting a show with uh, Keenan Collins, Latisa Wallace tonight. We'll be talking Democratic politics, primary politics. Uh, the future of the Democratic Party. Latisa Wallace is running for Congress in the 17th Congressional District. Uh, and uh, Kina is a ca- candidate here in the 7th. Very good. Uh, thank you very much, Lee Allen Jones. also want to thank the man, myth, the legend, the pride of Joy Vault in Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. Uh, and as Lee Allen will tell you, back home and all, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. You will, Ben. I will. I'll try. Well.